Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Well, if you remain standing for the reading of God's Word tonight as we uh, look to Joshua chapter 22, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. So it is 34 verses, so hope your stamina will be able to remain standing. If not, uh, you are welcome to, to be seated. But uh, let us read the truth of God's word this night. Joshua 22, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, and he promised them, Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. When, Jordan, when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. When they had come to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Benasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it to the whole assembly, people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And the people of the Lord sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribe families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family along the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, and the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation to the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? And turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? That you too must turn away this day from 
following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow you'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Take for yourself the possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Or make us rebel by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zareth, break faith in the matters of the devoted things, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity? Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the family of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. It was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord. Do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to burn burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear. And in time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the boundary of Jordan between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might take our children and make them cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not a burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generation after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offering and sacrifices and peace offering. So your children say to our children in time, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, sacrifice, or other sacrifices on the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Uh, let's skip down to verse 32 then. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and to the, Lord, the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. The people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Living as a child in the state of Michigan, I learned early on to not like the state to the south, that is the state of Ohio, mainly because of a hotly contested football game that takes place every November, but the history runs much deeper than football itself. For in 1836, there was a border dispute over a strip of land which includes what is known as Toledo today. Now, we know it as Toledo, Ohio, but those to the north considered it Toledo, Michigan. And so both states claimed this land and this town specifically for themselves. In fact, it became so intense and heated that both states uh, raised up a militia in order to go to war 
to defend the land which they rightfully saw as their own. And this became such a national crisis that the president during that day, Andrew Jackson, had to step in to broker a compromise. And Ohio ended up getting the strip of land, and in return, Michigan received its statehood and also the upper peninsula that now it owns. One uh, woman uh, that was a part of this disputed area asked if she liked being officially an Ohioan, to which she responded, Thank the Lord, I never did like the weather in Michigan. (laughs) This conflict, perhaps some would see as a misunderstanding between two states, ended well and peacefully. And this example from history is similar to what we see here in Joshua chapter 22. This dispute between the ten tribes and the two and a half tribes. The ten tribes to the west and the two and a half tribes to the east. And what we see initially as a great sin is seen to be what it truly was. A misunderstanding. And even better, a testimony of these tribes east of the Jordan to the true and living God. And from this example, from this scripture, we can gain a true and proper way to maintain the peace and purity of the church. And so I want to look at that tonight in three points. The commendation and commandment, the cause for concern, and then lastly, confessing their commitments. First, the commendation and commandment. As we begin to get to the end of the book of Joshua here. We see that uh, we are getting to somewhat of the prologue at the end. As they have come into the land, they have conquered the land, they have divided the land, and now they are beginning to settle in the land. And Joshua wants to do everything that he can so that they will be able to prosper in this land. And the history of Joshua is one that is very much encouraging, isn't it? That it is one that is a a testimony of God's faithfulness to the people and the people's faithfulness as a whole to God. And what we see here in chapter 22 is that Joshua calls the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to come. And if you know the background, you know why he is calling these tribes to himself. Because if you remember way back in Numbers chapter 32, we won't go there now, but you remember that these tribes came to Moses while they were still in the wilderness, in a sense, east of the Jordan, before they were to go into the land. And they asked Moses if they could have this land on this side of the Jordan. And if you remember then, Moses was quite incensed by this request. He thought that they were asking, in a sense, to... Take it easy that while his, their brothers would go across the Jordan to fight and conquer the land, that they would just take residence over here and would not fight. In fact, Moses goes as far as to see this as rebellion against the rest of the tribes. He likens them to the 12 spies or the 10 spies out of the 12 that rebelled in the wilderness, leading the people astray. 
And he recites the whole history of what took place and how God has made them wander in the wilderness because of their rebellion. And now you're trying to do the exact same thing, you two and a half tribes of Israel. He even goes as far to call them a brood of vipers, a brood of sinful men. As you can see, Moses sees this as pure sin, pure rebellion. But you remember, in a sense, the rest of the story. The tribes say, hold on, Moses. That is not our intention. We are asking for this land so that we can build here, that we can uh, raise our families here. But we are not abandoning the rest of the tribes. We will take up arms. We will go west of the Jordan to help you conquer this land for the rest of the ten tribes. We are ready to fight We are ready to be brothers in arms. And when that land is fully and finally possessed, when the job is done, then we will come back to the east of the Jordan and dwell here. And Moses, in a sense, says, oh, well, if that's what you mean, uh, that's okay. And they agreed upon this, that they would have this land if they would come and fight. Well, we read of these tribes again at the beginning of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1. After Moses is dead and Joshua takes the helm, takes the charge, he wonders, no doubt, probably humanly speaking, if these tribes are truly going to keep their promises or are they going to renege on that word that they gave to Moses? Or are they going to say, well, we promised that to Moses. We didn't promise that to you Joshua. And so Joshua goes to these tribes and recites verbatim the promise that they made to Moses. And again, these tribes reiterate, we will do what we have said that we would, that we will go wherever you need us to go. We will obey Moses just as we obey you. And if any of us rebel, you may put us to death. Well, that is the context, in a sense, to what we come to here in Joshua chapter 22. They have now conquered the land. The war, in a sense, is over. And so Joshua calls these tribes and commends them for their faithfulness and for honoring the Lord. It has taken a long time. Most commentators believe it took approximately seven to ten years for them to defeat the land. And guess who was in the fight the entire time? The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Cad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. In other words, these were men of their words. They promised to Moses, they reiterated it with Joshua, and they have kept their word, in a sense, to their own hurts, to their own expense. What have they gained From the last seven to ten years. They were fighting for a land that they would not live in. They were fighting for a land that they would not profit from. They would gain no fruits from that particular land. They did so because they promised that they would. They were men of integrity. And seven to ten years is a long time, is it not? A long time to be away from their wives and from their children away from establishing their homes and their lands and their fields all for the sake of unity and for the common good 
of the church. And so these men have the right to be commended. And that's exactly what Joshua as a good leader does. Notice that in verses 2 through 3. He says that you have obeyed that which you have said you would to Moses. You have obeyed my voice, all that I've commanded me. You have not forsaken your brothers these days down to this very day. But you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And so in verse 4, he in a sense gives them an honorable discharge. Tells them to now go back. Enjoy your homes. Enjoy your land. Your service and your promise have been kept. And in fact, in verses 8 and 9, Joshua gives them some of the gifts of the, the spoils of the land that they would be able to be blessed with as they return back home. It's a gift of thankfulness, if you would. And I think what we see here is something of a good model. From time to time in this church, as you know, we recognize those that serve and serve well in the church. And those aren't just merely accolades. There is thankfulness to commitments of primary faithfulness to the Lord. Now this is, in a sense, uh, a time to say you said that you would do this, you have done this, you have made this promise before God and before man, and you have kept your commitments, and you should be commended for it. And so for service in church, or as we recognize people that have been married for 40, 50, 60 years, these are things that the church should ultimately celebrate. Why? Because in a world of faithlessness, in a world of broken commitments and false promises, we should commend those that are models of keeping their word and promises made. And that should be recognized. And I think that's exactly what Joshua is doing here. And then he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to not only commend them, but continues to command them to be careful to obey all that has been set before them, that they would walk in the ways of the Lord, that they would cling to him, that they would serve him with all their hearts and with all their soul. And again, even those that have served well, what should be our word to them? Continue to do so. Continue to be faithful to the Lord. And may this uh, commendation spur you on to greater love and faithfulness, and even greater works for God and for his church. Well, second, then, we see this cause for concern. This happy occasion is soon disrupted because these tribes begin to go back. But before they go back over the Jordan, they make an altar. And this is indeed disconcerting because the Lord has commanded there to be only one altar, one place where burnt sacrifices and grain offerings and peace offerings would be made. As one commentator puts it in the Old Testament, there was one altar, one faith, one people. And that one altar was to be at Shechem and there only. So what is it that these people are doing? Are they engaging in false worship? Well, we know the rest of the story, do we not? That they were actually not engaging in any kind of false worship, nor setting up a secondary altar. But at the moment, it seems like they were. 
but there's a couple indications that I think is interesting that they missed upon. And it shows and demonstrates that perhaps they were presuming what was taking place instead of what was actually taking place. Notice, first and foremost, that as they made the altar, it says in verse 10, they made an altar of imposing size. In other words, they made an altar that was in many ways impractical to use on an everyday basis. Because what were they doing? They were making a memorial. Just like when you would make a statue. Most often those statues are not made to scale. Why? Because it demonstrates the size of it, the the recognition of the significance of the person or of the event. The, The size commemorates its significance. And that seems to be what was going on here. So they should have known that this doesn't seem to be a second altar, a greater altar, as they might have initially thought. Second, notice that they make this presumption based upon a rumor. In verse 11, it says, The people of Israel heard it said. How often have you heard that, perhaps in the hallways of the church? Well, I heard it said, or I heard someone say, that this is what's going on, or this is what's taking place. You know as well as I do that hearsay is not oftentimes verifiable. And it's a great way of spreading half-truths and lies, gossips and rumors. And so they should not have jumped to such a conclusion based on what had just been heard. But even more than these two things, they presumed a lot. And on the basis of the character of these men, they should have thought differently. Isn't it interesting that Joshua is commending them for their integrity, for keeping their word, for being men of faithfulness, And Joshua even charges them to remain faithful. Should they therefore assume that the moment that they leave their presence that they would go and quickly turn their backs on the rest of Israel and indeed on God himself? No, that seems to be a little bit presumptuous given what all these men had gone through for so many years. And so again, there seems to be a lot of guessing and uh, presuming going on here. But something that should be commended of these ten tribes is their concern. They were concerned for the worship of God. They took the worship of God very seriously. So much so that it says that they were ready to take up arms, as it says in verse 12, to go to war against their own brethren. In this way, they were following the commands of the Lord. Because Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that if you hear of one of the towns of the Lord your God is giving you to live in, and if you hear them saying, let us go and worship other gods, the command is for that town to be destroyed. And so they are ready to do this. They are not going to allow this false worship to take place in the land because there is to be purity, purity of the people and purity of the worship of God and that is at stake in their minds. And so even though they presume, their intentions are honorable. But Deuteronomy chapter 12 says this as well, that before you would go to war, you should inquire and probe and investigate thoroughly, it says, Deuteronomy 12 verse 14. 
And we see here the wisdom of God, right? We shouldn't just presume. We shouldn't just think that we know ultimately what's going on, but we should go and see if that which we are thinking is taking place is actually taking place. We should go forth and investigate and inquire and therefore make a case before charges are brought against these brothers and even perhaps sisters of the Lord. And that's exactly what, thankfully, Joshua and the people do. They appoint Phineas, the chief investigator, the chief prosecutor, if you would. And this is a wise choice. If you remember about Phineas, Phineas was the one that uh, uh, quelled the rebellion in the wilderness at Peor with decisive action. And so Phineas was a man of action. And it says that he goes along with uh, a representative of every tribe. In other words, he goes with an elder from every tribe. And so what we see taking place here in Joshua chapter 22 is what I think is, is church discipline. That the elders of the church are going to see if there is sin in the camp, if the part of the church has gone astray. And that's exactly what they do. And in verse 15, Phineas comes to them and asks them, what breach of faith have you committed? Why is it that you would rebel against God in this way? And then he even gives two historical cases as, as a good lawyer would of what would happen if you continue on in this rebellion against the Lord. He gives the example of the sin of Peor in verse 17, and he gives the the sin of Achan in in verse 20. And he says that since God's judgment was poured out upon us because of this sin and rebellion, and so Phineas, as he is saying it, and he's making his case to them, is saying, why would you do this to yourself? Why would you do this to us? Why would you bring this upon us? This is very much a serious charge that he's placing at their feet. Uh, A charge that comes with the death penalty. Well, what is their response? We see this with the third point then. We see their confession, not of sin, but their confession of commitment. Look again at their response. In verse 21 and 22. They say, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. Let Israel itself know. They call upon God to be their witness. That the God of heaven would be their judge. That if they have done what they are being accused of, they in a sense say, you have the right to take vengeance on us. We would be right to be slayed this day. If we were bringing sacrifice, if we were bringing a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a peace offering, and burning it on this altar that we have made, they essentially say, let the Lord take vengeance upon us. And isn't that a, just a, a wonderful response? They don't say to their brothers, they don't come across as offended or incensed. They don't come across as saying, how dare you call us into question. They said, you are doing exactly what is right, what you should be doing, if you were right. But you are not. You are wrong. In fact, you got it all wrong. And they go on to say, why is it that we have made this altar not for sacrifice, but to be a memorial 
to be a witness. As they say, lest the people west of the Jordan would forget us and forget our children who now live on the east of the Jordan. And the years to come, they would say that you have no part of us. You have no part of our worship. You have no part of our God. That you are not with us. We're over here. You're over there. You are not true Israelites in a sense. And you cannot worship the God of Israel. And so they're saying we made this so that it would be a symbol of our unity. It's not us and you. It's we together. We, the people, united on the same God, on the same purpose. And we do not want the Jordan River to literally be a divide in our unity or be cut off or forgotten. Again, if these people were to be admired before, they are to surely be admired now. In a sense, they are setting up a legacy. They are setting up an inheritance for their children. They are securing that inheritance. So often many people want to leave financial inheritance for their children and for their grandchildren, do they not? But how many of us think about the spiritual inheritance that we'll leave our our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? These tribes were directly concerned with that. And so they secure that eternal and spiritual inheritance with this memorial, lest their children be cut off from the true God and from the true worship of that true God. And that's why they made this memorial and they call this altar a witness for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. We're keeping the Lord as our God and keeping that unity that nothing would divide us. Well, I think there's a couple points of application here as we think through this scenario and think through this example that is applicable to us. And it regards the peace and purity of the church, that there is a need for the purity of the church. As I said, the tribes got it wrong. Those ten tribes to the west got it all wrong, but their intentions were right. They were guarding the purity of the church. Notice they don't say, oh, well, those crazy Israelites east of the Jordan, they're going to do what they're going to do. Let them be. Let them keep doing their own thing over there, and we'll do our own thing over here. No, calls them to account. It keeps them accountable. And accountability is a scary word for many. But it's only scary if you want to be free to do what you want to do. However, if you're committed to the Lord and committed to His ways, then you want accountability. You want other people. You want a church to say, yes, please keep me account to this. Please keep me account to the word of God, to the truth of God's word, because I know that my flesh is foolish, that my mind can go astray, and I don't want to. I want to follow the ways of the Lord. And so keep my feet to the fire. I need the body of Christ and the the elders of the church and the, the brothers and sisters of this congregation to to know what's going on, to pray for me, and and to to ask me how things are going in my life. That is why one of the membership vows is to 
submit to the government and discipline of the church for the sake of the purity of the church. And in my new members class, as I mentioned this morning, we have to explain what this means. Because again, submission is a a scary word in our culture. Why would I want to be submitted to the church? Well, we want to be submitted what is to that which is pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. In fact, Hebrews says that uh, if you're not disciplined, then you're an illegitimate child. And so we need the discipline of God. Discipline is a good thing. We all need that discipline to allow us to stay on the path that God would have for us. And as I say in the new members class, the best church discipline is self-discipline. Is sitting week after week under the word of God. That in a sense, every time that we have a worship service, that is a time of discipline. Right? As we conform to the word of God, to the truth of God's word, and we are brought into conformity to it, that God is reforming us through his spirit as we hear the truthfulness of it. But even so, there is times that proper and formal church discipline needs to take place if members go astray. And again, that is not to try to hunt people down. It is not trying to, to find out all these secret sins. No, it is to keep us accountable to that which we would want to be accountable to, to the word of God and to the truth of God. And so if there is serious or blatant or habitual and perpetual sins, that is where church discipline is, is good and right and should be used. And that is what I think we see here. As I said, I think this is an Old Testament example of church discipline taking place for the sake of the purity of the church. Well, along with the purity, we also want the peace of the church. And I think we see that here as well, that that peace and unity in the church are so very precious, precious in the sight of God and pleasant. That's why we sang earlier Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There are things that want to disrupt our unity, disrupt our peace, that would break the peace and unity of the church. And the Israelites here jump to conclusions. They are presumptive. But 1 Corinthians 13 would say this, that love believes all things, hopes all things. In other words, it believes and hopes the best. It doesn't believe and hopes the worst in others. And if there are questions, if there are rumors, if there are suspicions, what should you do? Go immediately to the pastor? Go immediately to the elders? No, Matthew 18 would say, you as a brother and sister in Christ are to go to one another, to call each other to account. And that if there is that which you suspect or maybe are even suspicious of, that is, gives a time for that person to confess But it also gives an opportunity that you might not understand, that there might be a misunderstanding. Because I know this may come as a surprise to each and every one of us, but sometimes we get things wrong, don't we? We don't think we do, but there are times more than I would like to admit that I have gotten things wrong and sometimes completely wrong. And I think all of us have. 
And so the peace of the church commands us to go and to find out. And so we see here, again, such a beautiful example of the peace and the purity of the church and how vital these two aspects are, how these are both needed, and yet how both of these were upheld in this Old Testament example. Let us pray that the church in the 21st century would uphold these things as much as the saints did in Joshua 22. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your grace and goodness and love and mercy to us. And Lord, we thank you for that accountability. We thank you for the accountability of the Holy Spirit that indwells in us, Lord, that would bring to our conscience anything that would be wrong or sinful. And Lord, that during those times where our conscience is pricked or that we know that we have uh, rebelled against you in, in sin or disobedience, Lord, that we'd be quick to turn from that, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would turn from our sin, that we'd turn unto Christ, that we'd turn unto what is right, that we'd turn unto to life everlasting that is found in Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, if there are times that we would be hardened in our own sin or our own disbelief, that there would be good brothers and sisters that would call us to account, that would call us again to, to the truth. Obviously in love as we are called to go, O oh Lord, but the, sometimes the, the love is saying that which is truthful and sometimes even hard to hear. And Lord, we pray during those times that you would restore again that peace and unity that we would have with you, the peace and unity that we would have with the church. And Lord, we pray that you would keep your church pure, as pure as a sinful and fallen church can be on earth until you would make us that perfect and complete church, that perfect and complete spotless bride of Christ in that day of redemption. Lord, until that day, we pray that you'd help us and enable us. We pray this all in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.